You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Welcome. So good to see so many of you here this morning. Also for these of you online, welcome. Glad to see you. Be seen there. Glad you guys are here. So it is spring. Kind of feels like it, smells like it. We're all kind of feeling springy, I hope. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the last couple of years, we've sort of fallen into this rhythm as a church where every spring... Uh, we take a look at a theology series. Now, in one sense, like every message ought to be theological, every sermon, that's what they are, but we take a focus every year, and uh, last year it was the Holy Spirit, we've also done spiritual warfare, things like that. We did a series on the five solas of the Reformation a couple of years ago, and so if you want to ever listen to those, they're available online, you can go check them out. But October, as our staff was fasting and praying about where we would go this year, trying to sense the Lord's leadership. And our elders were fasting and praying, the same thing. One thing just kept coming back is, we just want to talk about Jesus. And I love that, um, because, like, I mean, here's the thing. We say this all the time. We exist to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. We sing it all the time, like, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All I have is Christ, Christ my firm foundation. We say his name a lot, but here's what I know. Our world is moving faster and further from the teachings of Jesus. And in order for your faith to survive, and not just really survive, but to thrive in a post-nominal Christian world, your faith must rest on something other than just your church attendance, although I'm glad you're here. Um, It must rest on something more than just financial giving, although generosity is worthy of celebration. Not your community group or your accountability partner or the latest book that you read or anything like that. In order for your faith to thrive in a world that's moving away from Christ, you must be built on the foundation of who Jesus is and what he did. And so that's where we're going these next six weeks. This series is called Cross Reference, Seeing Jesus Rightly. A very basic, but hopefully very helpful, theology of Christ. Now, um, whenever we start a new series, I think it's helpful to let you know where we're going and why. But here's the thing. I know as soon as I said we're doing a theology series, this room just like split in half. Okay, or if you're at home on your couch, right? So like half of you went like, yes! Like just take me to the deep end of Dogwood Pool and like throw me in like the 12 foot section. Let's go. I want depth. I'm ready to go. And the other half of you are like, gosh, I hope they didn't see me roll my eyes just then. And like, how's this going to go? Because here's the thing. Like certainly there are other things that we have to attend to, right? Our country is in tatters. The economy is about to implode. We're at this pivot point in our culture, and this is not the time to retreat to the dusty theological library or escape to the ivory tower. Besides, isn't like all theology just academic? It takes away from like the simple joy of just loving Jesus. Theology divides, and like we've got enough of that in our culture, don't we? Do we need any more? Besides, there's so much that we just can't know, and so... Maybe we just shouldn't ask the questions. 
And if you're thinking that silently to yourself, I love you. I care for you. I hear you. I've said those things myself sometimes, but I couldn't disagree with you more. (laughs) I think this is the time where we have to be abundantly clear about who Jesus is and why what he did is so important. But here's another way of looking at this. In one sense, everybody in this room is a theologian. I don't know if you thought about yourself that way, but theology literally means a word or a thought about God. You have a thought about God. You have a word about God. Maybe they're unconscious thoughts, thoughts you absorbed from maybe how you grew up or what you were taught. Everybody in this room is the theologian. The question is, are you a good one? Where does your theology come from? Is it consistent with God's word? Why do you believe what you believe? How have you come to that thought? Even the atheist is a theologian, much to his chagrin and consternation. Without the God who gives him the ability to think, the atheist couldn't even think about the God he tries so hard to deny. And so the question is really not are you a theologian, but are you any good at it? So before we get into the series, I think it's worth a few minutes um, just to talk through a few reasons why theology matters, especially in a post-nominal Christian culture where biblical faith is being pushed to the periphery and Jesus is being excused from the cultural conversation. So there are a lot of reasons why theology matters. You would expect me to say that, but I want to give you three. So here we go. First reason why theology matters, so that we can grow up in Christ. So we can grow up in Christ. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine it's date night at the Marshall House. Mandy and I are going to Gervasi, because that's just like where we go. We have a date night. We head over there and we just sit, get all dressed up, like we budgeted for it, so it's okay. Like I can get the big steak. It's all right. I get the coat on. I won't wear a coat on date night, because Mandy would think that I would get ready to preach at her or something. So it's not how we do that. We go to Gervasi, like the kids are all taken care of. We turn the phones off, get them off the table, and we're just sitting there. And the server comes by. And they say, what can I get you? And I say, you know, um, I know I should order the steak, but do you guys have sweet potatoes? He's like, well, yeah, we could serve that as a side with a couple of our dinners. You can get sweet potato fries if you want a burger. And I go, no, 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 like mushed up sweet potatoes. Like, I guess like, I guess I could talk to the chef or something. That's a little weird. No, 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 don't bother him. I don't bother the chef. What I'm looking for is like those little ones, like in like a jar. I think Gerber makes them. And could you bring me like a little spoon and like a bib? (laughs) Brennan likes that. That would be ridiculous, right? That would be so silly. Here's what Hebrews chapter 5 has to say. Hebrews chapter 5 says this. I have much more to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull in hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you know who eats Gerber baby food? Babies. You know who eats steak medium well? Not medium well. Medium rare, the way God intended it, right? (laughs) Adults, here's the point. Hear me. You will never grow when you prioritize comfort over courage. 
You'll never grow when you prioritize comfort over courage. Theological growth takes courage. It isn't comfortable. And so here's the question. What does this constant craving for theological comfort keep us from enjoying? What's the cost of consistently choosing comfort over courage? What does comfort prevent in me? And what does courage want to call out in me? So hear me, and then we'll move on to reason number two. In theological growth, as in so many areas of life, God loves you enough to welcome you exactly as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He doesn't want you eating Gerber baby food. So that's the first reason why theology matters, so we can grow up in Christ. Second reason why theology matters, so we can know Jesus better. And this comes from Paul who before he was a Christian would have considered himself a wonderful theologian, a professional theologian, although he's about to say that he was a really bad one. And so this comes right out of Philippians chapter 3. You can just watch this or just listen. Here's what he has to say. He says, If anybody else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now he's just going to unload his resume. Here's what he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. It's a weird flex, Paul, but okay. This is him just saying, like, I had everything on lock. And then here's his conclusion in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Loss. Like a waste of my time. I was working backward. Really, Paul? All that hard work, all that spiritual rigor, all that outward obedience, waste of time. Yes, why? And now pay attention to the verbs. He says this. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. You see what he's saying here? He's like, I'm not going to try and do this. What I really want is to know Christ. Two main words for know in Greek, which both of our English translations translate as know. So it's not entirely helpful. First one, oida. Say oida. Oida, right? This means, like, I see or I understand. It's when I know something based on information or an observation. Today we might say, like, yeah, I see what you mean. Or, like, if you're a teenager, go, yeah, 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 I know, I get it, I get it, I get it. That's oida. But then there's the second one, gnosko, which means something like, oh, yeah, like, I know it. Like, deep down here, I know this is right. If oida is when you know something, gnosko is when you know someone based on an ever-deepening relationship. Like, you may know Mandy, but, like, I know her. Oida rests on facts. Gnosko includes facts, but ultimately it requires a relationship. Oida suggests completeness. Gnosko says, oh, I'm just getting started in this whole thing. So oida and gnosko. Take a guess which word for no Paul uses here. Gnosko. Here's why that's an important distinction. When you learn from Christ, you are entering a school from which you will never graduate. And here's why I bring all that up. What if Christian theology wasn't just a set of facts, oida? 
What if Christian theology includes solid facts but extends to a right relationship? Gnosko, hear me. I don't want you to know Christ like in a test tube just to be able to spout off right facts about him. Doctrine that stays on the shelf, just gathering dust and cobwebs, is useless. In fact, I'd even go further. Theology that doesn't lead to relationship isn't theology. It's just speculation. It's just academics. It's just a hobby. And you don't want that, and I don't want that, because our world doesn't need that. I want you to know Christ, because you're growing in relationship with him. There's knowing, and then there's knowing. Our world doesn't need this one, it needs this one. Which leads to the third reason why theology matters. And this one probably is the most pressing, I'd say. So we can shine in a dark world. Quick poll, just to make sure you're paying attention. Our world is a light place or our world is a dark place? Which one is it? Dark. Here's what Jesus, who is called the light of the world, and then calls us the light of the world, says. He says, you or the light of the world, meaning those who will follow him. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and tell everybody how awesome you are. No? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's something I'm learning. Um, you only notice lights in dark places. Dark places need light, right? And our world is a dark place right now. According to Jesus, it's always been dark. But here's where we mess this up, okay? For the longest time, churches and well-intentioned pastors sometimes have played the game like, if we build it, they will come, right? we got to figure out how to get people here. We try to figure out how to fill churches with people rather than fill people with love for Christ. And it's not if they will build it, they will come. If we build them, they will go. That is the difference. That's the flip. Here's the difference. When the goal of church is involvement, or just like do something, then church becomes the reason rather than the result, and we inevitably produce spiritual consumers rather than spiritual contributors. And it sounds like this. I'm only here because of what you do. Say the right things, do the right things, play the right songs, I give my tithes, my offerings, and in exchange, you will do this for me. Like, that sounds like a business contract. Like, yikes. Give me away from that. Bad theology. Gospel sounds different. The goal of the church is not church. The goal of the church is to keep the gospel intact by making Christ known, so abundantly clear among those who don't know him. Our mission is to keep the person and work of Christ so clear that a lost and dying world is drawn to him, not us. We're not here to make something grow, but to make someone known. Church isn't the reason to do anything. It's the result of what Jesus has already done. Catch the difference? Now, when you lead like that, Instead of getting spiritual consumers who say, I'm here for what you do for me, or I'm here because I like something, you get spiritual contributors who just go, man, because of what Jesus has already done, I'm going to live this way. Tell me which kind of people change their world. I guess what I'm saying is if we're supposed to be a city on a hill, let's not block the light. Let's do everything we can to make Jesus known. Or if you want to say it like this, make much of Jesus every day to everyone and trust him for the result. So that's the third reason why theology matters, because our world is dark and needs the bright light of Christ. So, 
All of that is intro for this morning. I got like 20 minutes left. So here's where we're going in the next six weeks. Um, I just want to kind of give you a roadmap so that you know um, a very basic but hopefully very helpful theology of Christ. We're going to ask six questions, and here they are. Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? That's today in 20 minutes. Next week, why did Jesus have to be fully God and fully man? Why did Jesus have to live a human life? That's going to be a really good one. Why did he have to die on a cross? Why did he have to raise from the dead? And then lastly, why did Jesus have to ascend, reign, and why is he going to return? So that's just a quick roadmap for you to let you know where we're going. And each week is going to kind of be built in three parts. First, what does this doctrine mean? Like, what, are we, what does the virgin birth even mean? Then second thing, why is it so significant? And then lastly, what am I even supposed to do about this? So this morning it's all about doctrine of the virgin birth, because this is sort of where the story of Jesus starts. So I want to give you an image real quick before we get into the text. Um, theology is a little bit like skipping rocks on a shore, especially if your theology is built on God's word. Right? You pick this thing up and like it touches at different points across God's word, and you start to pick up this theme. The doctrine of the virgin birth actually doesn't start in Bethlehem at Christmas time. It starts much earlier than that. The doctrine of the virgin birth starts in a perfect garden where a crafty serpent deceives a woman named Eve. And you know the story, right? When the dust settles and it's all laid out in the open, God confronts the serpent, and here's what he says. Just one verse, Genesis 3.15. He says this, I will put enmity, he's talking to the serpent, I will put enmity or adversary, I'll be, I'm going to put something against you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, your translation might say crush, you can bruise his heel. Now, that's a really weird place to start, isn't it? What is he talking about? This is the first whisper of a promise that will come to be known as the Messiah. This one who will one day set right everything that our spiritual great-great-grandparents messed up in the garden. And he'll have his heel struck. It'll be bruised. He will suffer pain. But the serpent's head will be crushed. Which is worse? bruise on your heel or a crushed head. Hold on to that for a minute. Then the rock skips for a few more centuries and it touches the water again in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This is in the prophets. And here's what Isaiah 7, 14 has to say. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. And so the rock skips from Genesis 3.15. It touches down in Isaiah 7.14. And then it's airborne for 700 more years until it finally lands in its fullness in Matthew chapter 1. Here's where we want to start today. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This text usually shows up at Christmas time, but it helps to give us the whole picture. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Quick little thing there. What that is, is he's going, I don't know what happened. I mean, I know, I know, I, but what do I do? 
And he didn't want to make a big deal about it. He's just going, ah, I want to preserve Mary's dignity. I'm stuck here. But, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Interestingly, Jesus' name is the Greekified version of the name Yeshua, which means God saves. That's appropriate. And they took, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And now here's Matthew quoting Isaiah 7, 14. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, knew her not, until she had given birth to a son. They called his name Jesus. Now this is the crucial texts. So let's ask our first question. What does this doctrine even mean when we say virgin birth? So when we say that Jesus was born of a virgin, at first that seems kind of obvious. We know what that means. But let's clarify it. So here's what it means. Theologian and scholar Wayne Grudem does a great job of putting this as succinctly as possible. When we say that Jesus was born of a virgin, what we mean is that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary, by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, without a human father. Three pieces to that that I think are going to be helpful that I want us to see. First, what's with Mary? Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. Why is she so important? Who is she? And how does she factor into this whole picture? So, depending on your church tradition, you may have been told um, that Mary has an elevated position above other people. You may have been taught that she is sinless, that she somehow takes part in salvation, or you may have been taught to pray through her. And so with all matters of, of doctrine, we want to look at what God's word actually teaches us. How does that line up with what God's word says? So what do we know about Mary? First, God's word teaches us that she was probably young. She's a virgin. That word can mean two things. Someone who's not had sexual intercourse, and then also it means a young woman. So in this culture, she was probably mid to late teens. And so if this helps put it in perspective, it's very likely that Mary was a teen mom. We also know that Mary and Joseph were lower class. And we know that because when they go to present Jesus at the temple, they bring a pigeon, which is God's provision for couples who couldn't afford a spotless lamb. And then after Jesus, we know that Mary and Joseph actually had other kids. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 lists at least six of them. And so by all accounts, Mary lived a life that was very typical of a lower class, normal, first century Jewish woman. And I would say, let's just kind of thinking on this, I would say that it's actually because of her typical life, because of her ordinariness, that God chose to work through her, right? Isn't this how God works? Like, doing extraordinary things through ordinary people seems to be kind of God's thing, right? Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, I chose Israel, not because they were the biggest, the strongest, the greatest, or had the greatest possibility for success. I chose you just because I loved you. That's beautiful to me. Ezekiel 16 says the exact same thing. I just chose you just because I love you. Paul even picked up on this. I'm going to reference this one just really quickly. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
He just says, he says this. He says, think about who you were when you were called. Not many of you were noble or wise, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise that no one should be able to boast before God. This is how our God works. And so that's Mary, this very ordinary vessel used for God's extraordinary purposes. So the virgin birth is Jesus conceived in the womb of Mary, his mother. What's the second piece? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's that about? Matthew makes it abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit was involved. Matthew and Luke both mention the Holy Spirit, but they handle it differently. Did you catch how Matthew says it? He said, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So not a lot of detail there. That's not entirely helpful, because like we want to know, how does that even happen? What is that? Found? What kind of an answer is that? Found to be with child from the Holy Spirit? But remember, Matthew's audience is Jewish. Why is that important? Because as steeped as they were in Jewish tradition and Old Testament prophecy, they knew Isaiah 7.14. They knew Genesis 3 and dozens of other texts that skipped like a rock across the waters of time, and all of a sudden they're going, oh, this is it. He's here. This is who we've been waiting for. So Matthew doesn't need to give us a lot of detail. Luke's gospel, though, pushes things a little bit further. Luke, you might remember, was a doctor. Doctors love details, especially medical ones. And Luke, writing to a largely Greek audience, an audience that is not as familiar with Old Testament prophecy about a Messiah, Luke gives detail that Matthew skips over. Luke drops us in on a private conversation between Mary and an angel. Here's the scene. This is Luke 1, verse 30. It says this, The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid. What a great word for an angel to say to somebody who's about to have her life turned upside down. Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You'll bear a son. Or behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. And his kingdom, there will be no end. So some great Jewish cultural references for people who don't know the Jewish culture. He even tells us his name. Jesus, which means God saves. But then he continues. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Great question, because that's the same thing that we are asking. We know where babies come from, right? But here's the angel's answer, verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That word overshadow, that's the key. That word is the same image that's used when the glory of God covered the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the whole tent was filled with the glory of God in its fullness. Now, not to get too weirdly biological here, but think with me. In a very real sense, what Luke wants us to understand and what God wants us to understand as he inspired this through Luke is that just like the Old Testament tabernacle was filled with God's presence in its fullness, in some way, Mary's womb for nine months will be filled with God's presence in its fullness. What is that? That had to be absolutely mind-blowing. What a jaw-dropping announcement that must have been for her to hear. 
Back to the text, though. What do we see here? First, the Holy Spirit is going to initiate this. This is God's moving in his sovereignty. More on that in a minute. But because this is God's doing, this child will be holy. Again, more on that in a minute. Son of God says that he is divine. He's sent from the Father, co-equal with the Father. He isn't a created being like any of us were created. There's something different about Mary's child. He is human, but he is also God. So that's the second piece of this doctrine that we got to understand. Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And then this third one, without a human father. Now if you're a dad here, you do the same thing that I probably do. You go, well, why leave Joseph out of this? What did he do? There's actually a really good answer for this. For this, we got to go back to Genesis 3. One of the outcomes of the fall... Sin, what happened in the garden, one of the outcomes is that all humans have inherited what we call original sin or inherited sin. Here's what that means. Because we're human, we are, from the moment of our conception, sinners. We have a corrupted, fallen nature. We have a predisposition toward rebellion, We lack complete spiritual good. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our goals, our motives, our bodies, it's all touched by the fall. It's not a very romantic notion, is it? Paul will say this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. He'll even say, we are objects of wrath. I've never seen that verse hanging on the wall of a nursery in somebody's house, right? It doesn't really accompany the birth announcements. But when we become toddlers, we see it, right? I've raised kids. We don't have to be taught how to be selfish. We are selfish, right? We don't have to be taught how to lie. We're liars. We don't have to be taught how to sin. We are sinners. What that doesn't mean is that we're all as bad as we can be. No, that's not true. But what it does mean is that left to ourselves, humanity does not trend toward the better. Left to ourselves, we trend toward the worse. Yes, life is beautiful. But thanks to sin, it also has a little bit of a wrinkle in it, doesn't it? Yes, creation is a masterpiece. But thanks to sin, there's something not quite right. Yes, people are image bearers worthy of the love of God. But thanks to sin, we are all a little tarnished, aren't we? Now, here's what that has to do with the doctrine of the virgin birth. The fact that Jesus did not have a biological human father means that sin did not pass to him. Some theologians like to say that the line of Adam was interrupted. Jesus didn't come from Adam the same way that you or I came from Adam, and so he doesn't have the sin that you and I have. Mary's child is somehow different. Luke says that he's holy. Holy. I've seen a lot of birth announcements I got one in the mail this last week, actually, from somebody. It's like those ultrasound pictures, and like people are so creative these days with how they, like pink and blue balloons that they're like, this whole big thing. I have seen a lot of really awesome birth announcements. I have never seen one that says this child is holy. (laughs) This is a different kid. Something about Jesus is going to be, I've also never seen one where it's called an object of wrath. But again, that's a different sermon for a different day. But that's the third piece of this doctrine. Because Jesus didn't have an earthly father, he didn't inherit sin. So quick summary, when we're talking about the doctrine of the virgin birth, what we're saying is that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary 
by miraculous work of the Holy Spirit without a human father. Now, here's the second question that we got to deal with this morning. Why is that so significant? Why does this even matter? Okay, this is an ancient, ancient, ancient doctrine. And it's a doctrine for which I'd probably take a bullet. Scripture teaches this. It's super important. This belongs like in this dogma category. Like this separates people. The doctrine of the virgin birth. If you say that Jesus was created, we have a problem. Why is this so significant? Three principles that we're going to hit. Principle number one, the virgin birth shows us that God keeps his promises. Now, if you could go back to Genesis 3. Go back to the garden after the first sunset after sin. Eve is devastated. She ate the fruit. and She can't get the taste out of her mouth, and it soured her stomach. But then God makes her a promise, and he says, hey, that serpent... That serpent who deceived you, who lied to you, who sent your life into a tailspin, that serpent's head one day crushed. One day, I can't say when, but one day he's going to come and he's going to have victory over sin and death. One day. Now after centuries of waiting, centuries of waiting for this Messiah to come up, do you think people would start to doubt that God would keep his promises? Sure. We check DoorDash like every two minutes when they're supposed to get Chipotle to my house, right? Like it's, we check this thing all the time like, well, God, when are you going to deliver this Messiah? Come on, show up. Here's why I love the idea that God keeps his promises and why this is such a good thing to muse on. And forgive me if this sounds cynical. I love that God keeps his promises because nobody else does. Doesn't that sound cynical? I'm sorry. Like, it sounds like I'm being a bad person. I don't mean to sound cold and cynical, but it's true. Like, even the best of us, on our best days, with our best intentions, I let people down. You let people down. We all let people down. Why? Because we're people. We're not God. But the doctrine of the virgin birth says that God is not limited by centuries of distance. He's not predictably forgetful like we are. He's like what we just sang about. He's unquestionably faithful. He says that while the mountains shake and the earth trembles, not him. He keeps his promises. Tell me our world doesn't need to know a God like that. Who never abandons, always delivers. Never forgets, always remembers. Never leaves you alone, always shows up just at the right time. Guys, this is the God of the gospel. A God who keeps his promises. He always has and he always will. And so that's the first principle. The first reason why this is so important. Second reason. The virgin birth shows us that God's provision is perfect. Let's go back to this idea of a Messiah for a second. If God was going to raise up a Messiah, one who was going to fix it all, a perfect lamb, shouldn't he do it perfectly? Now, we'll get to this in the coming weeks, but for now, it's worth asking a question. What's the point of the incarnation anyhow? Why did Jesus even have to be born? Why couldn't God just like snap his fingers and fix everything? We've danced around this verse a lot recently, but it's worth saying again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him, what? We might become what? 
The righteousness of God. Why did Jesus have to be born? How you answer that question says a lot about your theology. He had to be born because he had to fix something that I couldn't fix myself. Here's the point. Because Jesus is free of sin, we can be free from sin. That is a giant, massive theological statement. The virgin birth says boldly, loudly, emphatically that God wasn't after just another pile of lambs on altars, that God isn't interested in incomplete sacrifices or would-be messiahs. The virgin birth says that God will bring up a sacrifice. He will raise him up. By keeping him free from sin, God preserved for anyone who would come freedom, absolution, atonement, that you could be made perfect. God's provision is perfect. He's not like us. Third principle, the virgin birth shows us that salvation comes from God. Salvation comes from God. This is such a big deal. What does it say about a God who designed the incarnation in such a way that the only way to explain it is that, well, God had to do this? What does that say about him? That he must move first. God must move first. Salvation comes from God. It's nothing that we do. I can't make this happen. John chapter 1 is this great spot. It's like one of the great, great camping places for the doctrine of the incarnation. It says this. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You've heard that before. I love the way the message interpretation says it. It says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that great? That God moved toward us because we can't move toward him. Scripture says we're enemies of him. The virgin birth is a crystal clear reminder that salvation is never, ever, 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 ever through human effort. I can't impress him. I can't be good enough. But salvation is always only ever through what God does for us. Paul picked up on this in Galatians chapter 4. Listen to this. This is Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Sent forth, like not created. He was eternally preexistent, but his time had come to be sent. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons that you might be adopted by the holy God of the universe. What that means is that through the virgin birth, Jesus is living proof that God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is the gospel, pure and simple. So, that's what the doctrine means. That's why this is so significant. And now, what are you supposed to do with this? And with this, we'll close. I'm going to ask you a question a question that's going to sound embarrassingly reductionistic. It's going to sound so simple in light of all that like heavy slugging that we just went through, all that like really deep theology. This question is going to sound so simple, it's almost embarrassingly stupid. It's very, very basic. But here it is. Do you believe that God loves you? See? It's like so basic and simple. 
But I'm serious. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that this rock of ages skipped across the waters of time and landed in backwater Bethlehem without hardly a ripple and became a savior who would die for you? Here's the thing. That's not theology only. That's truth for you. Do you believe that God loves you enough to do that, to interrupt time, the way things work, right at the right moment? to raise up a savior for you. Do you believe that? I'm not asking you if you believe it's true. It's true whether or not you believe it. (laughs) I'm asking you, do you believe that's for you? I know he's a savior. I know he was born of a virgin. I know. However, do you know that? Have you ever made that personal? This isn't just academic theology. My favorite verses. Romans chapter 5, and with this we'll close. (laughs) For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you feel ungodly? Good. Christ died for you because God loves you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You feel like a sinner? Good. Christ died for you because God loves you. This business of God's faithfulness that we've been singing about this morning and that we're going to sing about, this isn't just academic. This is this beautiful truth that's all wrapped up in the person and work of Christ. Do you know him? Is he yours? Let me pray. Father, there's so much to praise you for. So much that you have done, your wisdom, your sovereignty, your goodness, that you hold time in your hands. And in a garden that we messed up, where perfection was rotted, and we spit in your face, and we do it every day, that was not a constraint for you. In your wisdom, and your sovereignty, and your goodness, you moved time in such a way to send your son into this world to buy us back and to reverse the effects of the fall that we could be called righteous, adopted sons and daughters of God. You are so worthy of our worship, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done for us. I ask in this coming month or so, God, that as we wade into these waters, that we'd be met by you. We'd be be refreshed by you. Lord, thank you so much that we can never get too deep for you. You are always deeper than our sorrow and our worry, our unfaithfulness. God, your faithfulness is deeper. Lord, we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.